Well, I want to add my appreciation um, to all of you dads out there. Um, many of you, um, you may not know this, but you're an example to me of what it looks like to be a good dad. Um, I look out on this um, congregation multiple times over the last 20 years, um, and I've asked myself, how in the world am I supposed to do this? And I've thought about you. So thank you for being a congregation of good dads. Um, you're not perfect, neither is the pastor, um, but you have shown me a good example of what it looks like to love and to serve um, my wife and love and serve my kids. So happy Father's Day um, to all you dads out there and the dads-to-be. So um, we're in part three of this series called Kaleo, and if you haven't been with us uh, throughout this series, let me get you caught up. Kaleo is the Greek word for called um, or invited or summoned, and we've been talking about this idea that we are called to be the body of Christ, the hands and feet of Jesus on this earth. And for the last couple of weeks and for the next two weeks, we're just talking about what that looks like practically. Um, uh, the first week was, was we're called to make disciples, that as individual followers of Jesus and as a group of followers of Jesus, this is what we're called to be about. No matter your age, no matter your personality, if you're introverted or extroverted, um, no matter your gifting, we're all called to help other people find and follow and obey Jesus. This is what we're to be about as the body of Christ. Um, last week, we talked about um, we're called to serve that each of us has a role to play in the body of Christ. Um, Jesus is the head. He is the one we take our marching orders from and everybody else, regardless of the gift. Um, we are a part of that body. And we talked specifically about a part of our local body um, that we feel at this point in the history of our church that we need to invest in. We need to build up um, our kids' ministry. And you've already heard we got nine of the 30 adults um, signed up and ready to go for the fall. Um, I planned this series terribly because I did the serve message last week before a week of kids camp. So our kids ministry folks have been rushing and they're trying to do that at the same time, trying to have all these conversations with people who fill out the application. So if you filled out the application and you haven't heard back from them, give them a little grace. They've been a little busy taking care of your kid this week, all right? Um, but they'll get to it. Um, and, and we need 21 more beach balls in that bin by July 31st. So we're going to keep talking about that. Um, today, I want to talk about, um, this is, I was, I, was sitting, I was sitting back there worshiping with y'all, and I thought, this was a terrible day to talk about generosity. <laughs> it's actually a pretty good day to talk about generosity. Um, and I want you to hear from the very beginning Today is not about trying to get you to give money to the church, okay? That's, that, that's certainly an application of this, but that is not my goal um, one bit today. My, my goal is really to continue to point to this idea that God has called us to be generous because it's a reflection of his generosity, and as a church, I tell you this multiple times a year, when I leave here and I go talk to my peers or I talk to people out in the community, um, and, and I play golf with a lot of guys who, who don't know you and don't know this place, and they talk, they, they ask, so what do you do? You know, well, I'm a pastor. And, well, tell me about your church. I talk about your generosity. I don't talk about the band. The band's great. And I don't talk about the staff. Staff's great. I don't talk about ministries. I talk about how generous you are, not just with your money. 
That's a portion of it. But I talk about how generous you are with your grace. I talk about how generous you are with your time. I talk about how generous you are with your love. So today is not me squeezing you to say we need to be more generous. My, my hope is to, to show you how generous you already are and then continue to encourage us to, to be like that. In fact, uh, we just finished a fiscal year. So a fiscal year for us runs from June to May. And over the last year, we just had the best giving year that we've ever had in the history of our church. And that's not to say, yay, God, you know, look at us or pat ourselves on the back or, or be puffed up with pride. It's really to say, look what God has done through us as a generous church for the first time. Uh, in the history of our church, we receive more than a million dollars in giving. That doesn't include admin conspiracy. Sure, yeah, give yourself a hand. Absolutely. There's, there's nothing spiritual about a million dollars, but that's a big number. But it's a big number, and it's a collective number of what it looks like for us to be generous. That doesn't include Advent conspiracy, or that, yeah, it doesn't include Advent conspiracy. It doesn't include the tandem bake-off. It doesn't include all the little fundraisers that we do. You put all those together, it's probably closer to 1.1 million, but um, that, it's just amazing to me that I am leading a church that's so stinking generous, and I want us to continue um, to be generous. At the same time, um, I don't want you to hear me saying this, um, and, and you sit there, they well, a million dollars, they obviously don't need me to give anymore. That's, <laughs> that's not what this is, okay? That's not, we don't have a million dollars sitting in the bank just waiting for it. Well, what are we going to do with it? That's not what this is, okay? We have another fiscal year in front of us. We've set our budget lower than that number. It's just shy of a million dollars, and we, we have some things, we have some stuff we want to get done over the next fiscal year. Um, so we want to continue to be generous, want you to continue to be generous. And I always want to talk about what this looks like for us to be this in this realm of our discipleship, in this realm of our growth and our relationship with Jesus. And then at the same time, unless you're living under a rock, unless you've been living in a cave, you've heard a lot about money over the last couple months, haven't you? Like inflation, Gas prices, the Fed rate hike, my, my 401k, you know, whatever it is, it's like everywhere you turn, there's talk about money and everybody has an opinion what the government should do and shouldn't do. Everybody has an opinion about what you should do or what I shouldn't do. There's all this talk about all of this stuff and I am not a financial expert. Like I am not an economic expert. I know that shocks some of you, but... I'm not coming at this from, from like a financial expert piece. I want us to take a step back from all of that, can I call it noise? I mean, it's true. It's not false. I mean, there is stuff out there. But I want us to take a step back from that and look at this idea that what we're going through right now, what we're dealing with, like it's not new. It's not new. 2,000 years ago, Paul wrote to a group of Christians about a group of Christians who were dealing with some of the same stuff that we are. And he has something to say to them. And I think, I think Paul, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, has something to say to us as well through this. So if you have a Bible or a mobile device, I'd love for you to find 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Um, if you don't have a Bible or a mobile device, we'll throw these verses up on the screen so we can all, um, we can all follow along. But we're going we're gonna to meet some first century Christians who had plenty of money. They had plenty of money, but they were a little hesitant 
when it came to their generosity. They had feelings of generosity. They wanted to be generous, but they just needed a little bit of nudge in that direction. And in 2 Corinthians 8, Paul gives them a nudge. So Paul is writing this particular section of the letter to Corinthian Christians, to the Corinthian church, to compare them to another group of Christians from an area called Macedonia. Macedonia is like northern Greece. Um, And the Macedonian Christians, they're so generous, they're actually mentioned four different times in the New Testament as an example of what it looks like to be generous in the midst of suffering, in the midst of turmoil. And Paul, he's basically going to say, look, guys, look at how generous they are. And look at what they're going through. You should be like the Macedonian Christians. Follow their example. So we're going to work through 2 Corinthians 8. I'm going to make a few comments, and then hopefully we'll make some application at the end. Here we go, 2 Corinthians 8, starting in verse 1. And now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. Just like last week, the grace Paul that is, is talking about here, it's not saving grace. It's the ability to do something supernatural. It's, 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 in this case, it's generosity. And you say, how in the world does, is generosity a supernatural gift? Look at the second verse. In the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability, entirely on their own, They urgently pleaded. That means Paul didn't have to twist their arm. He didn't have to show them, you know, videos of of starving children. He just, they, they asked. They pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people. So here's what's going on. Paul is telling the Corinthian Christians who have plenty what the Macedonian Christians who didn't have plenty were doing when it came to an offering that Paul and his co-workers were taking for Christians in Judea, okay? The church in and around Jerusalem was facing persecution. You can read about that in the book of Acts. And so Paul and his co-workers are traveling around Greece, raising money to help Judean Christians. But the church in Macedonia and the church in Corinth were in completely different situations. The church in Macedonia was struggling, much like the, the church in Judea. They were under persecution, um, which, which the, the pressure of economic downturn, not that different than the one we're experiencing. Um, there were wars in different parts of the world that were affecting them. Does that sound familiar to anybody? Right? Again, persecution, famine they were dealing with. And all this added to a severe trial what Paul says, that they were facing, okay? And just so we're clear, take a step back here, just so we're clear, if we're, if we're comparing apples to apples here, we are the Corinthian Christians. We're not the Macedonian Christians. Like, I know things are difficult. I know you have to get a loan to fill up your car with gas. Like, I understand all that, okay? And it's more difficult for others of us than it is for others. I know that. But if we're comparing apples to apples here, we are not the Macedonian Christians. We're the Corinthian Christians. We have plenty, even with some of the crunches that we're feeling. So in this example, we're not the Macedonians. And Paul says to the Corinthians, Paul says to us, look at how they're handling it. Look at what they're doing, even in the midst 
of severe trial. Second verse again, he says they're facing a severe trial and extreme poverty. Another way to say it is severe persecution that resulted in extreme poverty. Because if nobody wants to hire you or your family members because you converted to Christianity, you're in trouble. If nobody wants to, to side with you, if nobody wants to provide for you, you've got a problem. And Paul says, even in the midst of that, how do they respond? Overflowing joy, rich generosity. There's severe trial and extreme poverty resulted in overflowing joy and rich generosity. Let me ask you, have you seen much overflowing joy lately? In our greater culture, have you heard stories of, of rich generosity? I know they're out there. I heard a couple this week. But, but I wonder, in this moment that we find ourselves in as a culture, as a world. I don't think we're in extreme poverty yet, but where people are struggling, a lot of people figuring out how to make ends meet. I wonder if this is a moment of opportunity for the church. As the world focuses on inflation, as the world focuses on the cost of gas and groceries and constantly checking their portfolio to see what the market is doing, what if the church decided to overflow with joy and rich generosity? What would that look like? What, what, what if every crisis is an opportunity for the church to step into our calling? And we are in the middle of one of those right now. What are we going to do? How will we respond? A little cultural understanding here is going to help us. So, so amongst multiple other things... There were two things that first century Christians didn't have that we do in times of crisis. Number one, banks or credit cards. They didn't have either of those that would allow them to borrow money. And social service agencies that would serve as a safety net. So if you're trouble, in trouble financially in the first century as a Christian, you're not going to just run down the street to the bank. You're not going to pull out your credit card and charge it and pay for it later. There's, there's no government aid. Your, your only option would be to go to a wealthy person called a benefactor. And a benefactor was someone who was affluent enough to, to hand out money to people in need. You'd go to them. You'd beg them to help you. It was a humiliating, you know, superior, inferior relationship. If they agreed to give you money, you would then turn into their beneficiary. And the benefactor-beneficiary relationship was very common in the ancient world. You'd have to pay them back, but because you didn't have any money to pay them back, you're going to do that in other ways. You'd have to go to their parties that they would have for all the influential people, and you'd stand up in front of all these influential people, and you would talk about how great this person was, even though you know they're not. Even though you know they fleeced you, even though you know you're their servant, you're their slave, you're their PR person, basically, amongst all these other things that you have to do. Paul is saying, even though the Macedonians are going through great trials, they, they have no safety net. They're not sure how they're going to make it. They're living paycheck to paycheck. Some of them have to had to sell themselves to a benefactor. And yet, they overflow with joy and rich generosity. When it came to this offering, like, I didn't even have to ask them. They came to me and asked if they could be a part of it. Wow. And then Paul, he, he, takes, he takes a turn 
He talks about generosity in the realm of spiritual gifts. Paul taught um, the Corinthian church in his first letter, 1 Corinthians, about different spiritual gifts. And now he's alluding back to that in his second letter as a way to say, you guys are good in most of these areas, but here's this one area I want you to excel in. Look at verse, uh, skip down to verse 7. But since you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in the love we have kindled in you, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. Okay, so Paul taught that God gives certain people the gift of generosity. He believed that the Holy Spirit gives gifts. And what that means is that for some of us, um, we're supernaturally inclined to be generous because generosity is not natural. Selfishness is natural. You know how I know that? Because I didn't have to teach my kids the word mine. <laughs> right? Every one-year-old, anything within reach, anything they've ever touched once in their life, anything they were playing with earlier or looks like something they were playing with earlier is mine. Right. Everything broken is yours. <laughs> how it works. It's, it's just, that's how we're naturally bent. So generosity, it's not natural. It's supernatural. It's not about having a lot of money. It's not the amount of resources you have. You could be in the lowest tax bracket and still have this gift of generosity. In fact, study after study after study says the more you have, the less generous you are proportionately. It's people who have less that give more. So if you have that gift, you see people's needs and you want to meet, you want to do something to meet that need. You feel concerned for people. You just like to give. You look for opportunities to give. You delight in giving. You, you like spending money on physical resources, on, on people who need your resources. It's just something God has put in you. And I will say this, we need you to use your gift. You need to engage with that gift. The world needs you to engage with that gift. It's how you love people. It's how you edify, how you build up the body of Christ. For others of us, we don't give as easily. And you probably married each other, <laughs> right? We, we, we're, we're, the giving just doesn't come as, as easy to us. We're not as inclined to be generous. We like to save more than we like to give or spend, right? Some of us, we, we have to be convinced that, okay, convince me this is an actual need before I write this check, right? And I say this from personal experience, <laughs> okay? I'm more in this camp. My wife is more in the camp of just this, this natural ability, the supernatural ability to, to give. Some of you have the gift of generosity for others of us, me included, it's a discipline. Some of us is a gift. Others of us, it's a discipline. You could say that the Macedonians had the gift. The Corinthians needed to develop the discipline, right? Some of you, if you don't budget generosity, that ain't happening. You think, well, one day I'll have enough to be generous. That's like saying, well, one day I'll have enough money to have kids. If you wait, it'll never happen, right? If you don't budget, you got to develop the discipline of generosity. And again, I just want to point you to the greater culture that we find ourselves in right now, where generosity, collectively and individually, is one of the greatest, most effective tools for evangelism that the church has. And I'm talking both individually and as a body. When we are generous, 
We have credibility, and credibility is a commodity the church doesn't have a whole lot of in our culture. And a lot of that is because of people who do what I do, sitting in this chair, misuse money. And they put a bad taste. Churches, church leaders, parachurch organizations put a bad taste in greater culture because they mishandle money. Or they use it for selfish reasons. So what if, instead of being panic-stricken about what's going on in our world, maybe we should start thinking about making investments in people, in organizations, in kingdom-advancing initiatives with our money, with our generosity. Generosity. It's a spiritual gift for some of you. For others of you, it's a spiritual discipline. My question is, do you know which one you are? Do you know which camp you find yourselves in? And if you don't, do you want to know? Would you like to find out? And then once you find out, would you like to actually engage in your gift? Would you actually like to engage in the discipline of generosity? Paul, he goes on, and I think this is the linchpin. This is, this is the centerpiece of, his, of his, um, his argument. He says that money, it's a reflection of our theological and biblical convictions. If you say that you believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sin, you've accepted that sacrifice as the payment for your sin, your debt has been paid, Paul would say, well, if you believe that Jesus has treated you generously, are you generous with others? That's what he's going to say here. It's his challenge to the Corinthians. Look at verse 8. He says, I'm not commanding you. So I'm not forcing you to do this. But I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. He's pointing back to the Macedonian Christians. Here it is. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. Now, this verse has been taken out of context so many times by so many different people in context. This is not about the material or socioeconomic circumstances of Jesus's earthly life. This is, is Paul talking about the theological reality of Jesus giving up heaven, leaving the perfect community of Father, Son, and Spirit, and humbly stepping in to human history. How did he live? He was born into a working class family. We know at least when Jesus was first born that, that Mary and Joseph were poor because of the gift that they give at the temple. They give two doves. It's for the people who are, who are just in extreme poverty. He was born and raised in a working class family. As, as far as we know, he spent the majority of his life at the lower end of the economic spectrum and he died a criminal's death. I was thinking about this this week. The only time in Jesus' earthly life where he was treated as a rich man was when he was put into a rich man's tomb. It was only in death that Jesus knew on this earth what it was like to be rich, materially speaking. He was generous to leave the riches of heaven to become human. He was generous not to live in the palace but in poverty. He was generous to go to the cross, to suffer and to die, to be my benefactor, to be your benefactor. He was a good benefactor. 
He was generous to raise three days later to defeat sin and death once and for all. He was generous to go through all of that to make a way to our Father. He was generous to give us the gift of the Holy Spirit. Jesus had very few resources, economically speaking, but he was the most generous human being that's ever lived because of that reality. So when we, as individuals, as families, as a church, when we are generous like that, we are reminding the world of the generosity of Jesus. How we handle, how we view money is a reflection of what we believe about Jesus. Paul is saying this is a gospel issue with financial implications. This is a gospel issue with financial implications. If you ever want to know how you should view and handle money, look at how Jesus lived. Look at how Jesus died. Look at what Jesus taught. It's a gospel issue with financial implications. He goes on, verse 10. This is his pastoral advice. He says, here's my judgment about what is best for you in this matter, talking about this offering they're taking up for the Judean Christians. Last year, you were the first not only to give, but also to have the desire to do so. So they started strong. They, they were the first ones to do this. Now finish the work so that your eager willingness to do it may be matched by your completion of it according to your means. For if the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what he does not have. Two things I think Paul is saying here that we should make note of. Number one, it is not our intentions that make us generous, it's our actions. It's to have feelings of being generous and not to actually be generous does nobody any good. It does nobody any good. James picks that up. And says, if you say to your brother, hey, be well fed and be warm, but you don't do anything, your faith is useless. It's not intentions of being generous, it's actions. And the second thing, we're to give out of what we have, not of, of what we don't have. That generosity for followers of Jesus isn't about the size of the gift, it's about the size of the sacrifice in proportion to what you've been given. One day, um, Jesus was standing around the temple treasury and he sees a widow put two small coins in the offering. And what does Jesus say? He says, she just gave more than everybody else. How? <laughs> well, what do, you, what do you mean? Well, everybody else gave out of their wealth. But she gave everything. It's proportionate to what you have, not to what you don't have. So if you take what Paul says here, if you take what Paul says throughout the rest of, of 2 Corinthians 8 and 2 Corinthians 9, which I encourage you to read later, the other, um, the other letters that he writes to the churches, here's just a summary of what I think he teaches about generosity. Number one, make a plan. Make a plan. Just like you have a plan for spending, right? Okay, we got one, got a couple. Just, just like you have a plan for spending, I hope you have a plan for spending. Just like you have a plan for saving, make a plan for giving. Make a plan for giving. Plan, budget how much you're going to give. Then be consistent. Be consistent. Paul told them to, to put aside a sum of money every, every, every seventh day of the week. Put it aside. Be consistent because there's going to be things that are going to come up. There's going to be things that are going to distract us. And, oh, I had to buy it. It was 20% off. I just had to buy it, right? We're going to get distracted. We're going to, be, we're going to be tempted. So be consistent in your generosity. And lastly, lastly, give joyfully. Give joyfully and give proportionally. We give joyfully 
because we remember how much Jesus has given to us. We remember how much he's given to us. And we're a reflection of our Father. So let's be joyful in our giving. And then we give a percentage. We give proportionate to what we have, not proportionate to what the neighbor has, not proportionate to what they have, not proportionate to what they proportionate to what I have. And, and, and there are times where I've gone a little bit deeper than this. We don't have time to get into, okay, what's a tithe and all that stuff. Some of you want me to give you a formula, give me three steps, you know, be specific, Tim. But I actually, I don't have time for that today. But at the same time, I don't want you to follow my promptings. I want you to follow the Spirit's promptings. I would much rather you be obedient to Him. So here's all I'll say about this. For some of you, you just need to start. Just start being generous. If you don't know where to start, talk to somebody you trust. Talk to somebody who's been there and done that, and and you trust what they talk to your spouse if you're married, but start. For others of you, you need to start again. You've gotten off track. You've stopped. You've gotten distracted. Whatever it is, you've 